Welcome to Ontario Loud, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Grima Tolwar Kapoor. And I'm Alexi White. Today's episode is important, and it's grim. We're going to be talking about intimate partner violence in Ontario, what the situation looked like before COVID-19, and how the pandemic has exacerbated this problem for many across the province. But we're lucky that we've got a couple of great guests to help guide us through the situation. Let's set the context. Globally, the United Nations estimates that six months of lockdown is going to increase the incidence of intimate partner violence by 31 million cases worldwide. Alexi, as you called it in your recent piece for the CCPA, intimate partner violence is a pandemic within a pandemic itself. In Canada, we're starting to see some research that demonstrates that not everyone is safe at home. As a baseline, according to Statistics Canada, there were about 99,000 intimate partner violence offenses in Canada in 2018. Fast forward to 2020, and within the context of COVID-19, Concerns about increasing rates of intimate partner violence are being reflected in emerging research. Louis-Philippe Bellon and colleagues in a recent paper for the Canadian Labour Economics Forum demonstrated that about 15% of respondents were worried about intimate partner violence, ranging from extremely worried to somewhat worried. That's correct. 15%. Imagine if another issue was so pervasive in affecting Canadian households. The research by Bailon and colleagues showed that it isn't necessarily work-from-home arrangements or stay-at-home orders that are leading to concerns about intimate partner violence in itself. Rather, the inability to meet financial obligations and maintaining social ties significantly increases reported family stress and domestic violence. The mechanisms that contribute to increasing concerns about intimate partner violence during the COVID-19 pandemic have much more to do with social isolation and decreased bargaining power for women within their households. As the service sector industry is facing the most significant job losses during this economic downturn, a sector in which jobs are most usually held by women, the phrase she-session recognizes that women, especially those paid by the hour, are bearing the brunt of the job and work hours lost. According to Statistics Canada's March report, more than 6 in 10 lost jobs were held by women. While the economic downturn has affected the bargaining position of women in their households, social isolation contributes to intimate partner violence, not just because it's more challenging to connect with friends, family, or colleagues, but because the organizations that serve women are stretched. In an effort to support these organizations, the federal government has announced $50 million in emergency funding for women's shelters and other support services, but it's clear that more needs to be done. There's a lot to unpack here, and so we're very glad to have two guests join us for today's conversation. We have Liren Dockerty, Programs Manager with Women Act, an organization dedicated to eradicating violence in women through the community mobilization, coordination, research, policy, and education. We also have Vivian Green, Chair of the Board of Counterpoint Counseling and Education Cooperative, an organization that works primarily to deliver partner assault response programming to perpetrators of intimate partner violence. Welcome, Liren and Vivian, to the pod. How are you both? Great. Thank you. Great. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Uh, well, maybe to start the conversation, I'll go to Liren first. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that Women Act undertakes? Sure. Um, so Women Act stands for Women Abuse Council of Toronto, and we are a policy and planning body that works to try to advance systemic solutions to both violence against women and gender inequality. 
And we do this by conducting research, by sharing knowledge, delivering public education, and really bringing together different sectors, whether that's anti-violence organizations, justice, legal, health, institutions, companies, to work together and really ensure that there is a coordinated response in the community for survivors of violence. Most of our research and policy focuses really on the intersections between violence against women and women's economic security. So something obviously that you touched on uh, upon in the introduction. So a lot of our policy and research work looks at both income security and housing. Thanks, Lauren. Really excited to get into that a little bit more. But Vivian, wondering if you could talk a little bit about what CounterPoint does in the sector. Sure. So CounterPoint has been around for over 20 years, and um, we are one of the few organizations across the province, really, that works directly with men who um, are... Uh, in our case at this point, charged with domestic violence-related crimes. Um, we also work to support their women partners as well. We are an anti-violence organization, and our role primarily at this point is to provide partner abuse response programs. So that's group programming, which we'll talk a lot about in, in um, traditionally in-person group programming for men who are mandated through the criminal courts uh, after they've been charged with a DV-related crime. The PAR programs were created as part of what was intended to be a coordinated and a more, much more effective criminal justice and community response prior to having PAR programs operating. If they were brought to charged at all, they would just get nothing, a slap on the wrist, whatever. And so a lot of work was done to create what was meant to be a coordinated response where the courts would actually take DV cases seriously. And a key part of that is to actually work with the guys to um, help them change their behavior and also provide increased protection to women after a charge. Wow, that's, that's difficult work that both of your organizations undertake in the best of times. Can you tell us a bit about how COVID-19 has changed changed the nature of your work, your organizations, the sector in general? Uh, maybe we'll start with Lyra, and I know Women Act did a survey of the sector when the pandemic began. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Um, well, I think our work at Women Act has uh, shifted, like most, of course, to try to support the sector in adapting, ensuring that we are kind of capturing the challenges in time and learnings, what is working, what is not working. And of course, try to start to look at kind of response and recovery planning and where we fit in. As you mentioned, we did uh, very early on and we continue to try to collect some information from organizations about the challenges they are facing. We asked them really what's keeping them up at night. We heard a lot of things. Uh, we heard, of course, a lot about how the nature of the work with survivors has become more challenging and complex. Contacting women has become difficult because now women are isolated in their home and sometimes with the abuser. So we're trying to find new ways to contact women safely, in addition to ensuring that women are safe in their homes during these new times. Even I would say the lack of face-to-face -face contact, given the type of work that we do, the nature of the work that the violence against women sector does, is quite new and it can be challenging. And obviously safety planning with survivors, it requires workers to take into account the new world, right? That certain services are closed, that employment might be affected, that children are now at home and a lot of what we've heard from survivors is that they are feeling in limbo. They're feeling stuck because they feel as if the world has paused. And so their plan, their safety planning has paused. They feel it's paused as well. And of course, we've heard that shelters 
had to quickly adapt to practice social distancing. Counseling is being delivered by phone, it's being delivered by video. And I, I think another thing just to point out what we heard from organizations, of course, uh, is that more than half of all organizations shared their worries about potential cuts to funding. And we've already seen this. We've seen that funding events have been canceled or postponed. Foundations have changed their programs. Sponsors have pulled out of partnerships. So many of our sector, in addition to the nature of their work changing, many of the sector are really worried about their fundraising efforts and how it'll be negatively impacted, not just now, but actually for several years. And this is obviously a challenge for what is already an extremely underfunded sector. Vivian, do you want to jump in? Yeah. Uh, so for Counterpoint, which is part of the whole uh, community response, uh, there's a huge number of issues that we've seen. Well, of course, as soon as COVID-19 happened, we couldn't do groups. And this is not voluntary programming, right? We are part of the criminal justice system. So even though the courts shut down, we had guys still in process and we still are getting some probation referrals. And of course, we know the courts are going to be starting up again. So we had to figure out what are we going to do? Because we, number one, can't just stop working with these guys. And part of the issue, the the model of the we're working with is that we have specialized domestic violence courts. And again, as Laren mentioned, many in some cases, men are actually back living with their partners. These are ostensibly meant to be low risk men, but uh, you never know things change. So, well, I, sh- I should preface this first by saying I'm speaking using the uh, gendered word men. Um, most the vast majority of the people um, charged with domestic violence related crimes are men. There are some women um, who are charged, uh, but we work primarily with, with the men. Women we try to are tra- intended to go to uh, EFRI, which is an organization that works with women uh, in conflict with the law. So I'm going to be using the gender term if that's all right. We are interestingly, um, I might be jumping ahead, but we are interestingly finding that in some ways there's some good things that are coming out of these individual contacts, but, um, but it's meant a big change for our staff. And it has huge implications for funding because we are now, instead of doing a two-hour group with two staff once a week with maybe 25 guys, we are having to do, we do 30 to 45-minute calls individually with those guys. So it's not just that there is not as much money out there, either coming from fundraising events or from, in our case, fees, but we have hugely increased costs. So that's a huge aspect. The other thing that we have seen that is a equally, if not more, serious impact is that these programs only work really effectively if we have good coordination between the criminal justice sectors, probation, and the PAR programs. And by working effectively, I mean keeping women safe. That has been a difficult at the best of times, uh, trying to get our these issues profiled and having crowns and police and probation take these kinds of cases seriously because there's always been a tradition, oh, it's just a DV case, you know, there's, yeah, he's going to beat her up, but it's not too bad, you know, it's in the family, all that stuff, which still is very much out there. Unfortunately, what we've seen is the tables that were created to provide this coordination so that when a man is on probation and he's doing a PAR program and, oh no, his probation period ends, the probation officer is supposed to and has the capacity to say, no, you have to finish that program, even though your term has ended. Those kinds of uh, coordination uh, opportunities are being lost. 
But this is hugely impacting the safety of women because cases are now falling through the cracks. We don't have, we have police not following up where they should. We have men dropping out of programs and not being followed up. So the whole tenuous coordination that ensures accountability and a consistent message and that men get increasing consequences when they don't do what they need to do, uh, it, we're very concerned that that's, that's falling apart. I guess the last thing I want to say is I'm, I'm very concerned because particularly at the beginning of this pandemic, there was a lot of talk. And again, even the you know provincial government saying, oh, this is terrible. We got to do something. We recognize domestic violence is, a, is um, there's an increased risk and an increased risk for lethality. But we certainly are not seeing that played out in increased attention to this issue. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Vivian. I think that you've certainly highlighted, you know, that COVID has exacerbated some of the existing systemic issues in the sector, and especially as it relates to the criminal justice side of this issue. Lirian wanted to uh, pass it over to you and see from your end how the pandemic has revealed and pronounced some of the systemic issues already prevalent in the sector. Yeah, absolutely. I think the one key thing that we're seeing, and it's no surprise, obviously, is a housing crisis, right? We were in a housing crisis before, and we are in one now. Um, We hear time and time again from survivors, from service providers, that housing is the key barrier for women fleeing violence. We know that affordable rental housing in this province is limited, and, and most women really leaving an abusive relationship are in financial hardship. And so the the options are increasingly limited. And also we worry that we know that women previously were living paycheck by paycheck and having a massive impact on their housing security. And what will that look like now? I appreciate that shelters are an option, but shelters in the province are working at capacity. Prior to COVID, an average of about 200 women in Ontario were turned away from shelters every day, mainly because shelters were full. Uh, That number has been increasing for years. And so we can only really see with shelters reporting now that they have increased demand that those numbers are are, are going to probably increase during this time. And of course, shelters aren't the only answer, right? Women want housing options. They want the option to access their own independent housing, which we know is difficult. They want the option to remain in their own home with the abuser removed, which uh, isn't really a policy option or even a policy discussion in this in this province or in Canada. So um, with women already living paycheck to paycheck, and then this a kind of economic fallout, I think is going to be felt for years, not just for months. And women are going to continue to have difficulties in in paying rent. And so I think that's something that we're seeing and that we're concerned about and not just now, but in the long run. You know, I, I there's been an eviction ban put in place. We have heard from women that they're receiving eviction notices uh, regardless of this ban. And that even when this ban is lifted, that we're likely going to see an increase in uh, homelessness among this population. Um, and, and when is that ban going to be lifted? Is it something that can ease up? Is it something that can be extended? Yeah, lots of lots of challenges uh, associated with COVID, associated with this very thorny problem uh, that need to be sorted through. So thinking about how we need to respond to this situation, especially what leadership we should expect from our elected officials. Uh, if you had the opportunity to advise Ontario's minister responsible for women's issues on how best to address intimate partner violence in the context of the COVID pandemic, 
uh, what would you what would you advise her uh, needs to happen? Well, I couldn't agree more with what Laren is saying. I mean, I would say, yeah, women need permanent, sustainable, uh, reasonable, low cost housing because we know that if they can get out of a, a abusive situation, they in most cases they will whenever and however they can. So the infrastructure for things like affordable housing, adequate childcare. I mean, all those things that we know that make life bearable and uh, make uh, enable women to have a productive, safe life are so critical. And I think as we are seeing constantly, this COVID situation has really heightened the, the people that are most dispossessed and oppressed by our current system. So I think that idea of investing in that kind of basic infrastructure. I think the other thing that, again, we are hoping that this situation can really highlight is that the criminal justice system needs to take this issue seriously. And for us, one of the big things is to take the whole need to work with men, because we know, although it's a very complex issue, there are ways to uh, enable men to get education and learn and change their behavior. And there are also when the criminal justice system works with community agencies like ours in an accountable and a coordinated fashion, we also are able to monitor those men and provide safety for women. If a woman's going to leave an abusive relationship, the safest time is when a guy is in a program because people have eyes on him and we're doing partner contact with her to keep know that she's safe. We need to take this seriously. I think that's the thing that many of us in the sector feel that, at least speaking for myself, that the province has never taken this seriously. Just to give an example, PAR programs have been around for 20 years. They have never had an increase, not even a cost of living increase in their budgets. Right now, the crazy thing about our current response is that the only men who have access to these educational programs, socio-educational programs, are men who are already convicted or charged. There are men out there who want voluntary programming. They realize either their partner's saying, you've got a problem, you've got to do something about this, but there's no funding for voluntary um, men to take these programs. So that's another thing, actually, that we're working on as we speak, um, hoping that the this pandemic will sort of help the powers that be realize we need to do that. Yeah. And I, I couldn't agree more, Vivian. And I think there is this wraparound support for women's economic security that we're going to need, or we will see spikes in violence for many years, knowing that these two things are closely connected. And that does include housing infrastructure, it includes rent control, it includes income support, employment support, um, and I think just to reiterate the importance of our sector, right? We we need core funding for these organizations, for women's organizations, for anti-violence organizations. And I think the pandemic is showing that. Uh, these are essential services and they're a vital part of our welfare system. They are offering health interventions, education, training, public health prevention, childcare, counseling, housing, as Vivian has spoke about, support and accountability for men. Some, of course, are carrying out advocacy and policy to work that to ensure that this pandemic doesn't set back advances in gender equity work. And yet these organizations are historically underfunded, they're working at capacity, they're promptly women workers, and this work hasn't been valued. I spoke about organizations worried about their funding. That's because many of them have to go out and fundraise for about 20 to 30% of their core costs every year just to stay open, just to keep their, their lights on. 
And yes, the federal government has offered a wage subsidy that charities can access. Of course, funding has come down both federally and provincially, which which is great. I also just want to add that I worry about some of the smaller grassroots organizations and movements that are often informal safety nets for women in their community. So yes, there are these established registered charity organizations. There's often a lot of groups, movements that are working in their community to ensure that women are safe, to ensure that Women have access to food, income generating opportunities for women, women who might not be eligible because of their immigration status for certain services. Informal safety nets are providing supports to those populations and those groups. And they're often, of course, not going to be receiving these subsidies or this support from federal and provincial governments. Yeah, you've both provided very compelling cases for the need for additional funding, uh, not just for directly the programs that you you operate, but for all those wraparound supports that are so important to to, to supporting women in these situations uh, and and all people who suffer intimate partner violence. Uh, I wonder if if you have thoughts on more of the the relationship uh, between the pandemic and intimate partner violence and the. The other opportunities for leadership that uh, we we I think we should be asking from our our elected leaders beyond simply you know opening up, up the purse strings and and providing additional support for for programs. To me, there hasn't been a tremendous amount of discussion about uh, the role of COVID nineteen in exacerbating domestic violence and intimate partner violence across the country, across Ontario. We know this is a, a problem globally. The United Nations has uh, actually probably been one of the strongest voices drawing attention to this issue. How how do like how would you like to see our society talk about intimate partner violence in the context of of this pandemic? Uh, and and how do we how do we actually start to discuss some of the underlying issues um, and use the pandemic in a way to shed light on the societal changes that need to happen uh, and not just um, the sort of the symptoms of the issue and, and treating those? I think that's uh, very, very much the case that we, as I say, there was sort of a flash in the beginning about, oh, yes, this is a problem, but there has it. It certainly has not continued. And as you say, we're not seeing, in fact, we're not seeing any attention to how do we make women safer? How do we create a safer community um, through policies, coordination, accountability? And I, I agree, it, this is much more than just opening the purse strings. What the community needs to do is to continue to really strongly demonstrate that the inequalities that are heightened by by the pandemic have a life and death impact. And so that's inequalities by race, by class, but and also by power dynamics. So women uh, in an abusive relationship have even less power that we need to see the policies, the, as I say, the coordination, the t- paying attention to this. Um, and my fear is that it's going to come with women being killed. And even then, we're not seeing it. The, the case in Nova Scotia, which was so horrific. And again, there was a, attention to the fact that this man was a known abuser. It came out late. So I have some faint hope that we can continue to raise this. And because of a kind of crisis response, for example, we are seeing that there's some interest in this idea of a a voluntary programming of being available for men. But I have to say, given the most recent things I've been hearing about the Ford government, cutting back and not filling 
places in the tribunals like the Human Rights Commission, I'm not very optimistic. So I think we need to um, just really highlight and keep fighting. I don't know, Lauren, what, what your thoughts would be on this one. Yeah, I was, I've been sat here trying to think how I could uh, inject a little bit more hope into this. And I'm not quite sure if I'm there there yet. I think that, as Grima said in the introduction, you know, if any other issue were so pervasive, and you're absolutely right, and I think the women's movement for many years has tried to find ways to garner public support and build political will around violence against women and other issues. And it's a... It's a struggle that has some successes and some setbacks, and it's often because of the nature and, and the power relations at play here. I, I think there is something about, we know that change comes for violence against women and some of these different gender equity issues when women are engaged in public and political life. And so I actually think that we need to be looking at how this pandemic is impacting women's engagement in that, because women right now are extremely busy and caught up in work, right? The idea that we're in this economic shutdown, as I I keep reading, in some ways it makes me chuckle because I picture this, you know, half of the world, this whole lot of women just rolling their eyes at that because, this, as usual, and even more now, the levels of unpaid care work, the the work that's requiring women to work overtime, whether it's childcare, cooking, cleaning, and caring, I would go as far as saying that even our experience in our sector, I'm sure Vivian would agree, that our sector is putting in a lot of unpaid work, right? This pandemic is exposing not only the lack of value on unpaid work, but it's also exploiting this unpaid work. And I guess to uh, your your question, Lexi, my, my worry is that this increase in unpaid work, these childcare responsibilities, these financial pressures, they're going to keep women out of public and political and, and public and political life, really, right? We need to find a way to reduce this unpaid work to value or and so I I think I would also, in addition to opening purse strings, really like to see the government look at how we ensure that that doesn't set us back, because that will also set back our movement. Um, as well. Definitely. Uh, thanks, Laren. There's That was quite the call to action. And I think for everyone listening, both Vivian and and Laren have both really outlined some of the, the key issues that are affecting women who are either suffering or surviving um, intimate partner violence. If I could ask you both for if there was one thing that you wanted folks listening to this pod to know about the work that you do or the people that you work with or the clients that you serve, what is that one thing that you wish they knew that most people don't know? Hmm. Interesting question. I think what they don't know is that there is amazing work going on with men but being done by committed women and men, and that that work, when it takes place in concert with people in the criminal justice system and in other sectors, really committed to keeping women safe, has a huge impact on put it, being putting men in a situation where they do change their behavior and women are safer and we can see a real change. And some of those men go on to talk in their own communities and become, you know, even local leaders, that kind of thing. I, I do think that people don't hear about that, don't know about that. And one of the issues about violence against women is that we we hardly ever hear men talking about the issue, which is a huge problem. It's become a woman's problem and it isn't a woman's problem. If the 
the rest of the the criminal justice sectors, at least, could just take this seriously and talk and look at what they're doing, listen to the community and work together in partnership. Because what has still so often happens is Crown attorneys are working there. They want to get guys through the courts. They want to get done with this case. And they're not looking at what we're seeing in the community. So that's my two cents. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I think just to add a few things, I think a reminder for listeners, of course, that services and supports for anyone experiencing violence or anxiety or isolation, they are open and available. And just because we are practicing social distancing does not mean that we shouldn't be looking out for those around us, whether that be neighbors, friends, or families who may be experiencing abuse. The other thing I think that I was just thinking about trying to, like I said, inject some hope in it. And I I feel quite hopeful for some change that's happening right now and that I think could impact our sector. And I think it's just a reminder that while people are speaking about when things will return to normal, I think there is a momentum building for change that we kind of need to jump on right now. So let's not try to just build, rebuild the status quo, which we know is not equal and one in which women are not safe. And we're starting to have these conversations in our communities right now, right? We're starting to have conversations about what justice looks like or restructuring safety or starting to revalue somewhat particular types of work, whether that's caregiving, starting to redefine what homelessness is and what um, and speak about women in their own homes who are not safe. So I, I hope that for the listeners, you know, we and everyone, we can start to look at things a little differently rather than rush to return to a normal because that might feel comfortable for some or at least the idea of normal feels comfortable for some. And let's instead kind of look at recommendations and solutions, many which the sector have. Uh, that are not only gendered, but of course, I, I, sh- I also want to say are intersectional, right? Because we've spoke about kind of this homogenous group today of, of women, but recognizing that different groups of women, different populations of women are at higher risk of violence or at higher risk of economic insecurity. So um, we do need to ensure that recovery plans are both gendered and intersectional. And I think, you know, the, the sector does have the, has a lot of solutions, has a lot of recommendations and, and having these discussions. So let's try to keep those discussions going and try to avoid for as long as we can, just going back to that normal because it's comfortable. A real, uh, again, call to action for all of us being reminded that uh, normal wasn't good enough. And uh, we've got an opportunity to really shape uh, what kind of future we want um, that's in the best interest and creates a safe and healthy society and environment for everyone. Thanks to both of you for joining us for this really important and at times grim conversation, but you both have injected a lot of hope for folks listening. Again, Learen Doherty is the Programs Manager with Women Act, an organization dedicated to eradicating violence against women through community mobilization, coordination, research, policy, and education. And Vivian Green is the Chair of the Board of Counterpoint Counseling and Educational Cooperative, an organization that works primarily to deliver partner assault response programming to perpetrators of intimate partner violence. Thanks both. That's all for today's episode. This Friday, we'll be back with our weekly news roundup, so be sure to tune in. Don't forget to like, follow, or subscribe to Ontario Loud on your podcast app and across social media. And if you have thoughts on what you heard today, get at us on Twitter at Ontario Loud or email us at OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com and we will get back to you. We love hearing your feedback. 
Material Loud is Karima Talwar Kapoor, Sam Andre, Alvin Tejo, Chris Martin, and me, Alexi White. We are supported by amazing volunteers, Aisha Anwar and Harmon Mundy. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. To become a supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash ontarioloud or ontarioloud.ca and click on the Patreon link. Thanks for listening.